Welcome again, friends, to Sleepy Time Stories. Thanks for joining me. My name is Robots, or Tom, and I'm happy to hear you are visiting me again. I hope you're happy to hear my voice. It's been a little while since our last episode, and I thought it would be time to do another one. I've been a little bit busy, a little caught up in some real life things, but I thought it would be a good time to leave you with another episode. If you've been enjoying the episodes of this show, if this show has helped you to get to sleep or if you just enjoy hearing the stories read to you. If you could write me a note, let me know what you like about the show. And especially if you would leave a review on iTunes. Give it a five star rating and just say, hey, this is what I like about the show. That would be huge. That would help this show get out in front of other audiences. And it also will help me know what it is you like most about the show, about the episodes that I do. And if there's something that you'd like me to cover in the future, or you have some ideas of ways I can improve the show, then just shoot me an email at Sleepy Time Stories Podcast at gmail.com. This week, we're digging into some stories from Skyrim. And many of you have probably played Skyrim. The joke is that everybody has a copy of Skyrim, or at least three copies of Skyrim, on every device in their house, from their PlayStation to their electronic refrigerator. This story is titled A Dance in Fire. And we begin with Volume 1 by Wagen Jarth. The scene is the Imperial City in Cyrodiil. The date is the seventh of Frostfall, the third era, 397. It seems as if the palace has always housed the Atreus Building Commission, the company of clerks and estate agents who authored and notarized nearly every construction of any note in the Empire. It had stood for 250 years since the reign of the Emperor Magnus. A plain fronted and austere hall on a minor but respectable plaza in the Imperial City. Energetic and ambitious middle class lads and ladies worked there, as well as complacent middle-aged ones like Decimus Scotty. 
No one could imagine a world without the commission, least of all, Scotty. To be accurate, he could not imagine a world without himself in the commission. Lord Atreus is perfectly aware of your contributions, said the managing clerk, closing the shutter that demarcated Scotty's office behind him. But you know that things have been difficult. Yes, said Scotty, stiffly. Lord Vanich's men have been giving us a lot of competition lately, and we must be more efficient if we are to survive. Unfortunately, that means releasing some of our historically best, but presently underachieving senior clerks. I understand. Can't be helped. I'm glad you understand, smiled the managing clerk, smiling thinly and withdrawing. Please have your room cleared immediately. Scotty began to the task of organizing all his work to pass on to his successor. It would probably be young Imbralius who would take most of it on which was as it should be, he considered philosophically. The lad knew how to find business. Scotty wondered idly what the fellow would do with the contracts for the new statues of St. Alessia, for which the Temple of the One had applied. Probably invents a clerical error Blame it on his old predecessor, Decimus Scotty, and require an additional cost to rectify. I have correspondence for Decimus Scotty of the Atreus Building Commission. Scotty looked up. A fat-faced courier had entered his office and was thrusting forth a sealed scroll. He handed the boy a gold piece and opened it up, but the poor penmanship, atrocious spelling and grammar, and overall unprofessional tone, it was manifestly evident who the writer was. Leotis Juris, a fellow clerk some years before, who had left the commission after being accused of unethical business practices. Dear Scotty, I imagine you always wondered what happened to me and the last place you would have expected to find me is out in the woods, but that's exactly where I am, haha. If you're smart and want to make a lot of extra gold for Lord Atreus and yourself, haha, you'll come down to Valenwood, too. If you haven't, or have been following the politics here lately, you may or may not know that there's been a war between the Bosmer 
and their neighbors elsewhere. Over the past two years, things have only just calmed down and there's a lot that needs to be rebuilt. Now I've got more business than I can handle, but I need some of uh, with some clout, someone representing a respectable agency to get the quill to the ink. That someone is you, my friend. Come and meet me at the Mthar Pascos Tavern in Philonesti, Valenwood. I'll be here two weeks and you won't be sorry. Doris. P.S. Bring a wagon load of timber if you can. What do you have there, Scotty? Asked a voice. Scotty started. It was Imbralius, his damnably handsome face peeking through the shutters, smiling in that way that melted the hearts of the stingiest of patrons and the roughest of stonemasons. Scotty shoved the letter in his jacket pocket. Personal correspondence, he sniffed. I'll be cleared up here in just a moment. I don't want to hurry you, said Imbralius, grabbing a few sheets of blank contracts from Scotty's desk. I've just gone through a stack and the junior scribe's hands are all cramping up, so I thought you wouldn't miss a few. The lad vanished. Scotty retrieved the letter and read it again. He thought about his life something he rarely did. It seemed a sea of gray with a black, insurmountable wall looming. There was only one narrow passage he could see in that wall. Quickly, before he had a moment to reconsider it, he grabbed a dozen of the blank contracts with the shimmering gold leaf Artreus, building commission by appointment of his imperial majesty, and hid them in the satchel with his personal effects. The next day, he began his adventure with a giddy lack of hesitation. He arranged for a seat in a caravan bound for Valenwood, the single escorted conveyance to the southeast leaving the Imperial City that week. He had scarcely hours to pack, but he remembered to purchase a wagon load of timber. It will be extra gold to pay for a horse to pull that from the convey head. So I anticipated, smiled Scotty with his best embralious grin. Ten wagons in all set off that afternoon through the familiar Cyrodiilic countryside, past fields of wildflowers, gently rolling woodlands, friendly hamlets. The clod of the horse's hooves against the soundstone road reminded Scotty that the Atreus Building Commission constructed it.
five of the 18 necessary contracts for its completion were drafted by his own hand. Very smart of you to bring that wood long, said a gray-whiskered Breton man next to him on his wagon. You must be in a commerce. Of a sort, said Scotty, in a way he hoped was mysterious, before introducing himself. Decimus Scotty. Griff Malone, said the man. I'm a poet, actually a translator of old Bosmer literature. I was researching some newly discovered tracks of the Norid play bar two years ago when the war broke out and I had to leave. You are no doubt familiar with the Noriad, if you are aware of the Green Pact. Scotty thought the man might be speaking perfect gibberish, but he nodded his head. Naturally, I don't pretend that the Noriad is as renowned as the May Eliidion, or as ancient as the Dancer Gaul, but I think it has a remarkable significance to understanding the nature of the Merolithic Bosmer mind. The origin of the wood elf aversion to cutting their own wood or eating any plant material at all. Yet, paradoxically, their willingness to import plant stuff from other cultures I feel can be linked to a passage in the Noriad. Malone shuffled through some of his papers, searching for the appropriate text. To Scotty's vast relief, the Carrion soon stopped to camp for the night. They were high on a bluff over a gray stream, and before them was the great valley of Valenwood. Only the cry of songbirds declared the presence of the ocean to the bay to the west. Here the timber was so tall and wide, twisting around itself like an impossible knot begun eons ago to be impenetrable. A few more modest trees, only fifty feet to the lowest branches, stood on the cliff at the edge of camp. The sight was so alien to Scotty and he found himself so anxious about the proposition of entering the wilderness that he could not imagine sleeping. Fortunately, Malin had he had found another academic with a passion for riddles of ancient cultures. Long into the night he recited Bosmer verse in the original and in his own translations, sobbing and bellowing and whispering wherever appropriate. Gradually, Scotty began to feel drowsy but a sudden crack of wood, snapping, made him sit straight up. What was that? Malin smiled. I like it too. 
convocation in the malignity of the moonless speculum, a dance of fire. There was some enormous birds up in the trees moving around, whispered Scotty, pointing in the direction of the dark shapes above. I wouldn't worry about that, said Malone, irritated with his audience. Now listen to how the poet characterizes Hermamora's invocation in the 18th stanza of the fourth book. The dark shapes in the trees were some of them perched like birds, others slithered like snakes, and still others stood up straight like men. As Malin recited his verse, Scotty watched the figure softly leap from branch to branch, half gliding across impossible distances for anything without wings. They gathered in the groups and then reorganized until they had spread to every tree around the camp. Suddenly, they plummeted from the heights. Mara! cried Scotty. They're falling like rain. Probably seed pods, Malone shrugged, not turning around. Some of the trees have remarkable... The camp erupted into chaos. Fires burst out in the wagons. The horses wailed from mortal blows. Casks of wine, fresh water, and liquor gushed their contents to the ground. A nimble shadow dashed past Scotty and Malin, gathering sacks of green and gold with impossible agility and grace. Scotty had only one glance at it, lit up by a sudden nearby burst of flame. It was a sleek creature with pointed ears, wide yellow eyes, mottled pied fur, and a tail like a whip. Werewolf, he whispered, shrinking back. Cathay Rat, groaned Malin. Much worse, Kajidi cousins or some such thing come to plunder. Are you sure? As quickly as they struck, the creatures retreated, diving off the bluff before the battle mage and knight, the caravan's escorts, had fully opened their eyes. Malin and Scotty ran to the precipice and saw a hundred feet below the tiny figures dash out of the water, shake themselves, and disappear into the wood. Werewolves aren't acrobats like that, Malin said. They were definitely Cathay Rat. Bastard thieves. Thanks, Stendar, they didn't realize the value of my notebooks. It wasn't a complete loss. And that ends chapter one. 
Now, I hope you've been enjoying these sleepy time stories, and sometimes I don't remember to remind you that although the episodes are only so long, I've purposely set up the episodes and any advertisements and anything else going on so that one episode can easily blend right next to the next episode, right into it, so that there's no change or disturbance that would wake you up if you were about to fall asleep. So if you haven't done it yet, set up the shows so that when the one you are currently listening to ends, it will naturally move on to the next show or the previous show. And if you're using this to sleep, it's not going to suddenly switch to some other podcast or just turn off, which can also be startling. Just let it run from one episode to the next. And now we're going to begin chapter two of A Dance in Fire. It was a complete loss. The Cathay Rat had stolen or destroyed almost every item of value in the caravan in just a few minutes' time. Decimus Scotty's wagon load of wood he had hoped to trade with the Bosmer had been set on fire and then toppled off the bluff. His clothing and contracts were tattered and ground into the mud of dirt mixed with spilt wine. All the pilgrims, merchants, and adventurers in the group moaned and wept as they gathered the remnants of their belongings by the rising sun of the dawn. I best not tell anyone that I managed to hold on to my notes for my translation of the Noriad Playbar, whispered the poet Griff Malin. They'd probably turn on me. Scotty politely declined the opportunity of telling Malin just how little value he himself placed on the man's property. Instead, he counted the coins in his purse. Thirty-four gold pieces. Very little indeed for an entrepreneur beginning a new business. Hoy! came a cry from the wood. A small party of Bosmer emerged from the thicket, clad in leather mail and bearing arms. Friend or foe? Neither, growled the convey head. You must be the Cyrodiils, laughed the leader of the group. A tall, skeleton-thin youth with a sharp, vulpine face. We heard you were en route. Event evidently, um, you... so did our enemies. I thought the war was over, muttered one of the caravan's now ruined merchants. The Bosmer laughed again. No act of war, just a little broader enterprise. 
You are going on to Felinisti? I'm not. The convoy had shook his head. As far as I'm concerned, my duty's done. No more horses, no more caravan. Just a fat profit loss to me. The men and women crowded around the man, protesting, threatening, begging, but he refused to step foot in Valenwood. If these were the new times of peace, he said, he'd rather come back for the next war. Scotty tried a different route and approached the Bosmer. He spoke with an authoritative but friendly voice, the kind he used in negotiations with peevish carpenters. I don't suppose you'd consider escorting me to Falinesti. I'm a representative of an important imperial agency, the Atreus Building Commission, here to help repair and alleviate some of the problems the war with the Khajiit brought to your province. Patriotism. Twenty gold pieces, and you must carry your own gear if you have any left, replied the Bosmer. Scotty reflected that negotiations with peevish carpenters rarely went his way either. Six eager people had enough gold on them for payment. Among those without funds was the poet, who appealed to Scotty for assistance. I'm sorry, Griff, I only have 14 gold left over. Not even enough for a decent room when I get to Philonesti. I really would help you if I could, said Scotty, persuading himself that it was true. The band of six and their Bosmer escorts began the descent down a rocky path along the bluff. Within a half hour's time, they were deep in the jungles of Valenwood, a never-ending canopy of hues of brown and green obscured the sky. A millennia's worth of fallen leaves formed a deep, wormy sea of putrefaction beneath their feet. Several miles were crossed wading through the slime. For several more, they took a labyrinthian path across fallen branches and the low-hanging boughs of giant trees. All the while, hour after hour, the inexhaustible Bosmer host moved so fast. The Cyrodiil struggled to keep from being left behind. A red-faced little merchant with a short pair of legs took a bad step on a rotten branch and nearly fell. His fellow provincials had to help him up. The Bosmer paused only a moment their eyes continually darting to the shadows in the trees above before moving on at their usual expeditious pace. 
What are they so nervous about? Wheezed the merchant irritably. More Cathay Rat? Don't be ridiculous, laughed the Bosmer. Unconvincingly, Khajiit this far into Valenwood in times of peace, they'd never dare. When the group passed high enough above the swamp that the smell was somewhat dissipated, Scotty felt a sudden pang of hunger. He was used to four meals a day and the Cyrodiilic custom. Hours of non-stop exertion without food was not part of his regimen as a comfortably paid clerk. He pondered, feeling somewhat delirious, how long they had been trotting through the jungle. Twelve hours? Twenty? A week? Time was meaningless. Sunlight was only sporadic through the vegetative ceiling, phosphorescent molds of the trees and in the muck below provided the only irregular illumination. Is it at all possible for us to rest and eat? He hollered at his host up ahead. We're near the Philonesti, came the echoing reply. Lots of food there. The path continued upward for several hours more across a clot of fallen logs rising up to the first and then the second boughs of the tree line. As they rounded a long corner, the travelers found themselves midway up a waterfall that fell a hundred feet or more. No one had the energy to complain as they began pulling up the stacks of rock, agonizing foot by foot. The Bosmer escorts disappeared into the mist, but Scotty kept climbing until there was no more rock left. He wiped the sweat and river water from his eyes. And that's where we're going to end for tonight. We'll pick up the story next time in a future episode find out what happens to Scotty and the rest of the group. I hope you have a wonderful night. I hope you remember to uh, leave me a review on iTunes if you like the show. It would be a big help. And if you know anyone else who would be interested in these stories or with help getting to sleep because this works for you, and share it with a friend. Also, one last thing to note. If for somehow you found this podcast outside of finding the other shows that we do on Robots Radio, then you can find out now that the other shows on Robots Radio are of equal interesting topics high quality content you should go check them out you can always check out the shows at robotsradio.net I do other shows that aren't for sleeping shows like the Elder Scrolls Lorecast and the Fallout Lorecast and then there's some other shows like the Hidden Pixels Podcast 
which also tells stories from video games. Then we have some new shows coming onto the network very, very soon, so keep an eye out for those. I wish you all a good night and a happy tomorrow. Good night, friends.